You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You are not made to make excuses. It's time for you to take extreme ownership for your life all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. Awesome. Carrie Grass, it is so awesome to see you and be with you today. How are you? Well, thank you. It's so great to be with you. This is going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. So I was just telling you before, and I think a lot of people who, who follow us and listen to us know that Emily and I, my fiance, we've been doing a book club together throughout this year. And so we've actually picked different themes. Like we did Ben Shapiro's How to Destroy American Three Easy Steps in January. Um, we've done one on Theology of the Body. We've done ones on, we did Dave Ramsey, uh, Total Money Makeover. Mm-hmm. All the kind of different areas and pillars that we try to hit on seeking excellence. And so uh, we picked anti-barrier exposed in June, I think in June or May, maybe it was April. Um, Emily also got all the theology of the home uh, books and things like that too. So she was on a yeah. Carrie Grass kick there for a while. <laughs> we got to read <laughs> anti-barrier exposed and it was just amazing. And so, um, you know, as somebody who I also, I like to speak on the, the difficult topics or the controversial things, you know, the book is basically every page is <laughs> it's pretty intense book I think yeah. yeah yeah no doubt about it so I'm super curious you know to just kind of get kicked off before we even get to like the contents of the book it's just like what was like your lead up to to writing it like what was kind of the insp- inspiration yeah. in your journey to um like you need to write it thank you thank you so much for having me um it's a great company to be in obviously um as far as your book club but uh yeah, this was a book that I, when I was writing the book, The Marian Option, it was just really clear to me when I was looking at Our Lady and, you know, here she is, the most painted woman in the world, the most revered woman throughout all of, all of history, even National Geographic has called her the most powerful woman in the world. Um, and I was looking at women in our culture and I was like, wait a minute, this is, the women in our culture aren't at all like Our Lady. And it's not like they were just kind of moved a little bit away from, you know, Catholic principles or something, but they've turned everything really on its head. All the things that Our Lady stands for are not what, you know, the culture is um, is living at this point. It's because of, of elite women in the culture. And so anyway, it was really interesting to sort of look into that and see, like, this isn't, again, this hasn't been a blip. This isn't just sort of some fashion trend that started at some point, but this has been an ongoing steady reality really since the late 60s. Um, and I, I just wanted to get into the, the roots of that and see like what's behind all this. So um, so I have a chapter actually in the Marian option where I, I say, are we in the age of Mary or the anti-Mary? 
Um, and then the, the, my publisher, Tan Book, said, you know, why don't you do a book just on the anti-Mary? And I was like, sure, why not? You know, um, mm -hmm. still at that stage where I had so much energy to write books. And um, I, so I, I signed the contract and I was like, oh my goodness, what if there's not enough content? And um, of course, you know, the content is just everywhere. In fact, it was really interesting. You know, I think I, I researched it for two years and, you know, let me tell you, it was so nice to not be researching it anymore because there was oh, so I much art content. And, um, you know, of course, a friend of mine said, once you see the anti-mare, you can't unsee it. Um, so I still, you know, have an eye out for it and paying attention to, to what's happening with it, all the developments and whatnot. But um, that, yeah, so the, the big question though in my mind has been obviously this connection between Mary and, and the anti-Mary and, and the culture. And you know, by anti-Mary, I don't mean an individual, I mean a spirit, um, not sort of like the antichrist or the spirit of the antichrist that, that St. John writes about in one of his letters. Um, so I think the spirit of the anti-Mary has really taken hold of women in the culture. And you know, the thing that amazes me most is just to look at the statistics about women and to see how miserable so many women are in the culture. And yet that is a detail that gets so kind of swept under the carpet. Um, so that's what, you know, was really the big motivation for this book was um, we know really what makes women happy and what, um, you know, every, every being is made for a specific end. Obviously we're made to be in heaven with God and to, to know and love and serve him. Um, but there's, that, that comes down to a very personal aspect for, for all of us. We all have a very personal way of doing that. And um, so many women are have just really bought into this. Um, and, I, and I think the hardest part is that they don't even realize they have bought into it because it's just been so pervasive that this is just how we think women operate. So, or this is how women are supposed to function or this is how women are made happy. Um, and yet again, the statistics are telling us that this isn't working. So th those are really the motivations for it. And I think also, you know, I, I lived this spirit for a long time too. I was definitely um, a very, non-practicing, practicing Catholic. I went to mass on Sunday and that was sort of it until I got to college. And then I had all these different forces, you know, tugging at me, um, whether it was a hookup culture or, uh, you know, I had a grandmother who was involved in the new age. And so I was in, tinkering in that. And uh, anyway, but in the meantime, I knew that the church is really home, but I was so well, so, so poorly catechized that I just didn't, couldn't break through all of that. So um, so I think that was also part of it was just trying to this my whole journey, um, which is every, you know, mo almost everyone's journey in our culture um, to try and free ourselves from this very, these very tight bonds that have have gripped the way that we think and the way that we live and the way, um, you know, we think our lives are, are, are meant to go. So, so that was in a nutshell, kind of the where how it all started. Absolutely. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And I'm curious, you know, I've, I've read the screw tape letters multiple times because it's one of my favorite uh, spiritual works by C.S. Lewis. And, you know, he talks about, and obviously it's not the exact same, but um, he talks about like going through that and like entering into that mindset, how difficult it was for him. And just like what mm -hmm. a dark period of his life that was, was, yeah. was that kind of the, the joy of being done yeah. with the researching oh, was goodness. just like, <laughs> it had Absolutely. to just be a lot to you know, And of course there's a whole section on the occult and, um, the Lilith section was just really intense because I was always working late at night and Lilith is, um, you know, a demon of the night. And, you know, I can't tell me how, how many weird things would happen. Like, um, 
uh, car alarms would go off, our car alarms would go off in, in our driveway yeah. and, you know, just strange things like that, that, you know, one in the morning, you're like, this is kind of freaky. Um, you know, why is this happening? So um, all of that, you know, there's, there's a, obviously going to be spiritual warfare in a, in a book like this. Um, but I think, um, yeah, it was just such a huge relief to, to not have to go back to all these sites and keep researching and um, just seeing all, you know, all these terrible things that, that women are doing that they think is really going to make them happy. So, yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. And so, I mean, I know that probably part of the spiritual warfare was just, um, you know, manifest itself in other people and like the opposition that you've had, yeah. because I know the book has obviously been not, yeah. uh, well received by the world, you know, as the right. world goes. Right. Um, yeah, and, I love my favorite review, I think on Amazon is, you know, the one star says something it was during the lockdown, somebody wrote it and said, this book would be really great toilet paper. Um, you know, everybody's scrounging around for toilet paper. So anyway, I think that's the winner. Um, but you know, I take heart in it that that's, I'm making the right people mad. So right. yeah, there's been plenty of, plenty of resistance for sure. What was that like for you when you were, I'm sure, like, did you have, did you have hesitations before you started while you were writing and maybe after you finished it before publishing it, were you yeah. like, when were you like peak nervous, I guess, or kind of concerned yeah. about how people would receive it? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, the 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 nice thing is, is I I've had enough experience publishing. You know, I've been publishing for probably um, ten years now, and maybe longer. But um, you know, you can't write about the things I write about and not have pushback in the com boxes and things like that, and you know, Twitter pylons and all those kinds of things. So I was already sort of kind of prepped for what the resistance would be, but. Um, you know, and that the left is really good. They will just ignore something entirely. And then, then it just kind of goes away. And that was what was kind of happening with it was it wasn't getting picked up by certain people until it got banned by Facebook and Instagram. They wouldn't allow it to be sold on their marketplaces like four days after mm. Biden was um, inaugurated. And so that actually just brought a whole new fresh group of readers um, to this book. And it, you know, it was one of these great things like, oh, please don't ban my book, you know, <laughs> because by banning the book, it just made sales go through the roof. And, um, you know, I was right. all over it. I mean, it was interesting to see what media sites picked me up. I mean, certainly, you know, the, the, the normal in the United States, as far as like the Breitbart's and Daily Wire and Federalist and, you know, places like that. But I also got picked up by uh, radio in Hungary, um, a TV show in Poland, Wow. Um, I was in front of Russia today, um, did media with them. So it was interesting to see these former, you know, Soviet, Soviet countries that know censorship well. These were the ones that were coming, you know, knocking at my door saying, how can this happen? And tell us a story and, you know, all of that. So um, anyway, yeah. So Our Lady has just really done, you know, I know that she's been a part of this book in terms of just helping the right people hear about it, even those that, you know, through these strange media tentacles are, are, are now reading it that never would have seen it otherwise. So yeah, it's been great. Absolutely. I feel like, yeah, you gotta be one of her favorites at this point. You know? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. She knows me on the inside, but um, yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, it's an amazing thing because I think we have such a narrow understanding and, and, a, and view of who she is. And part of that is because of the culture. Um, you know, the culture has been able to paint her as well as us, you know, those of us who are faithful to the church, um, kind of into this corner where we're seen as very, you know, not very bright, um, kind of doormats, um, certainly not educated, you know, all right. of these kinds of things. And um, so, and our minds are binary, you know, we like on or off, black or white. And so it's hard for us to sort of imagine, you know, you're either hip or you're a doormat. And so I think it's been fun to sort of break out of that mold and say, 
I, I don't really fit into the categories that you're trying to box me into and neither does you know the, the virgin mother she's she's just so much more than than most of us imagine so it's been fun to dig into that how do i help women understand who she is you know more than just this pious statue um in our churches right yeah it's a beautiful thing obviously a great mission and i'm sure that it does have plenty of challenges and i like what you you know you referenced talking about like your personal journey and experiencing what the world was trying to draw you into you know as a woman and so how do you feel like you know, writing the book, researching the book, like what were some of the biggest changes in your personal life and maybe in your motherhood and, and as a wife, as you were getting into all that? You know, a lot of it actually happened beforehand. Um, it, you know, it was really a, a progression because, um, and it certainly started, I did, I did a master's degree in philosophy and then I did a PhD in philosophy. And of course, other than um, physics, I don't think you can find a, a field that has fewer women in it. Um, and mm -hmm. so it was always just this dynamic where, you know, you're arguing with people a lot and you're in debate and discussion. And, um, you know, there's a certain way in which I always felt like I had to sort of present myself um, to sort of be, you know, tough and right and, you know, compelling and logical. Um, and it was interesting because I noticed that it was it, it, it wasn't working for me. It wasn't like making relationships stronger. In fact, when I encountered other women that were like that all the time, I didn't want to be around them. And so I, I really had to start asking these questions, you know, what is this really the kind of woman that God is intended me to be? And what's the alternative? And so, you know, while I'm asking what the alternative is at one point I heard my boss at the time um, say, you know, oh, that, that woman, she's just so sweet. And I, I can imagine, you know, I know it was one of those moments where I was like, sweet, what is sweet? Like, I didn't even know what the word meant in terms of a character quality and whatnot. I just always thought of it in such negative terms. And, but I was listening at this point and that's when I really started paying attention. But I also had had this string of boyfriends that, that we would break up and they would go marry a kindergarten teacher, like four of them. And so that was the other piece too. Like, okay, kindergartner teacher, kindergarten teachers are very sweet. So it was just this interesting um, progression of sort of seeing like what happens when I'm kinder and softer and I smile more and I dress differently. I don't, you know, I don't have my power suit on and um, I'm not trying to be so assertive and outspoken the way that I, you know, I've been told this since I was a little right. girl, first grade, I remember um, that wow. this is what you're supposed to be. And, uh, you know, I've told this story before, but I, I think, uh, you know, my favorite moment was about a year later, I was in the, in the metro in DC, I was getting on a train and um, some young man um, who had never seen before walked up to me and said, are you a kindergarten teacher? And um, so I knew I had, I had arrived. Um, that's, you know, something had definitely changed. Um, and I never saw him again. I have no idea who he was, but it was just that great question. So, so I think, I had to challenge all of these things in the culture first and really live them in a new way. Um, and then from there, it was really easy to sort of, sort of start seeing the, the picture and the broader strokes once I started seeing it outside of myself and just the way that women are so highly and heavily influenced by, um, by the culture today and this anti-Marian movement um, that really, it controls everything. It controls politics, it controls magazines, it controls the fashion industry, um, even book publishing um you know music all of that it's all this this very exact same um messaging uh that women are getting and that message is that you're really only going to be happy if insofar as you are mimicking men um and anything that kind of reflects virginity or motherhood which of course our lady is the virgin mother is really an, a negative piece in your life that you just need to get rid of um 
so anyway, it's, yeah, again, one of those long journeys, you can see the Holy Spirit's hands and all of it, but um, really a, a beautiful thing to just even see again, these little incremental changes of what happens when I'm kinder and nicer and warmer, um, instead of feeling like I need, to, I'm in a debate all the time. Um, right. So it's a great blessing to have all of those, um, those events unfold the way they did. Yeah, that's super interesting to hear too, because I feel, uh, you know, last summer I wrote, it was kind of, it was one of the first things that kind of gave Seeking Excellence, my ministry, a lot of um, momentum, I guess you could say, is I wrote like a three-part series on uh, on race, race and from the perspective of faith and everything that was going on last summer after George Floyd died. And right. so uh, it was titled, If Only Life Was Black and White Like Me. And <laughs> it was a series of three different letters and stuff like that. And it's so interesting because I really feel like I went through a similar process almost of you know, on the racial side, I used to be like, yeah, I bet. Like, yeah, I registered as a Democrat was super like Team Obama in 08, you know, like was all about wow. all of those wow. things. And, uh, you know, believed in like systemic racism in America and all this stuff. And then as I graduated from college, mine, instead of, you know, um, you know, sweetness or going in my gentleness was more growing in like some of the more American values of like hard work and ownership yeah. and personal responsibility. And, uh, right. you know, those types of things, like, I really started to see like, wait, as I, as I apply some of these things that, you know, are more traditional or, you know, more faith-based and more value centered, uh, I'm seeing very positive results in my life. You right. know? And, Imagine that. Exactly. Yeah, developing right. the life that I want, becoming the man that I, that I hope to be. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I don't buy the stuff that like the world used to sell me about being a victim and having yeah. no future and being oppressed and all this. I was like, I don't see it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you realize finally, like there's a boogie, there's this boogeyman, you know, that they are always saying this under the bed of this oppression. And I think it goes true for, for, it for the black community and for women. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, what's actually most fascinating was that to see the roots of that, the, the anti-Mary, um, you know, it's Marxism and it's the occult, the occult piece is, is, is kind of its own side thing, but the, the Marxist piece is really this, this victimhood. I mean, this is exactly what you see in the feminist movement completely. And it's um, this victimization that then turns into bullying. Um, that actually was the precursor and really the foundation of um, the LGTB movement um, as the, you know, it's exact same principles that have, have gone on to that movement. And now you can see it leaping exact same ideas again, this victimhood, um, this, this rampant Marxism, this let's have this conflict, you know, and the, with the women, it was women against men. With LGTB, it's a, you know, it's a whole other spectrum of people that are fighting each other, um, presumably. But they want to create this conflict. And then, of course, the, the, with race, it's, you know, people based on their skin color. So they're trying to create this, um, this aggression based on the victimization, but then that victimization turns into a kind of bullying. Um, so it's just this, these waves that, you know, we would never have gotten to critical race theory, if it hadn't been for these other two, two movements, you know, the, the LGTB movement, I actually call the fourth um, wave of feminism, because it's just the exact same ideas. Um, so what's fascinating to yeah. me, actually, to look at it is to see that there's actually a lot more pushback on critical race theory than there has been on these other movements. And I think some of that, and I'm still trying to work this out in my head. And if you have insights, I'd love to hear them. But I think part of the reason why we're seeing so much resistance to it is because of the fact that it's not usually a man and his wife in a fight, or it's not usually a parent and child fighting each other on these issues, but it's actually something more removed. And it feels like you can mm -hmm. actually, you know, argue these things instead of being so personal that you're gonna like sever relationships within your own family on this issue. So 
anyway, again, I could be totally mistaken about that, but that's kind of what I'm seeing is that people are willing to speak up about CRT in a way that they weren't previously in these other two areas, even though they're the same um, polemics and problems. Um, right. You know, yeah. That's, that's an interesting, that's such an interesting perspective on it. I definitely think that there's some, um, yeah, I think that that definitely could be uh, one of the possibilities. I think my pessimistic side just says that the only reason that people are standing up more against CRT right now is because it's newer than the other yeah. two. Um, yeah. Because I think that, uh, you know, you think I, I'm always entertained when I like listen to Ben Shapiro or Matt Walsh and they talk about like Obama and Hillary Clinton being like, uh, defenders of traditional marriage you know 15 years ago <laughs> right and it's right. like unbelievable to think of and like people today like can't even imagine that right. but like when obama was literally a senator running for president initially right. he was against same-sex marriage and it's yeah uh, just i think mine and, and in that same time period when he was interview being interviewed and things like that i'll never forget watching this interview uh, i think larry elder talked about it and showed the clip of him being interviewed i think it was by don lemon of cnn as well oh, wow. And he's like, do you think if you don't get elected presidents, it's going to be because of your race? Like that that will be the the leading factor. And Obama's like, no, I think I don't think we're there as a nation. I think we're past that. And he's like, if I lose, it's probably because I didn't run a very well, my campaign very well. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you look right. now at like CRT, all the things that we all have. And it's just, that race. Yeah, yeah, it's so wild how things have kind of divulged. But I like mm -hmm. what you said there. I think it's really interesting to think of the LGBT movement as, you know, spawning out of uh, feminism. And I think a lot of people don't recognize the waves of feminism and how things yeah. grew and changed. And so you talk about that a lot in the book, but can you give us a little bit of perspective on like, where, like, just talk about the, the beginnings of feminism and like, where do you feel like it diverged and, and really went wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I really zeroed in on, on the second wave of feminism. The first wave, I'm actually anxious to go back and spend a lot more time researching it because I think some of it really came out of Protestantism because um, Protestantism actually doesn't really know how to, what to do with women, um, and or at least it, it's finding a voice and a way to try to integrate them. But it's at its heart, it doesn't because you got rid of Our Lady. They got rid of Our Lady. They got rid of um, women religious. Um, you know, you now have a pastor who you may or may not be married to, and he's the one that's sort of calling the shots on the way that, that scripture is read. And so there's not a consistent way that, that women were understood in, in Protestantism. And I, so I think a lot of um, the reactions of feminism started with that. There's actually another book that I'm um, hoping to read. I haven't had a chance to, a scholarly book. It's written, it was written by a, a Swedish um, uh, professor. It's published by Oxford University Press. Um, called something like, where is it? Um, feminism and Satanism or something like that. And it goes actually back into some deeper roots. So I think that there's a lot more to the story to dig up, but I think that just starting with the second wave of feminism, what we really see it is just this huge Marxist influence for, um, you know, Betty Friedan sort of kicked things off um, with, uh, with her work and people just were looking for that, you know, had this ache with no name that she calls it. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, they just attributed it to being a homemaker that, that, that they just needed more in their life. And that was what was going to fill this ache with no name. Of course, we know that that ache with no name is the, you know, the desire of every human heart for God. Um, but for Dan didn't really know her, her tradition well enough to recognize that as a Jewish woman. Um, and that, but it just set something off. It was sort of this women were just in this place to sort of start hearing that and comparing themselves to men. Um, and then you see someone like Kate Millett come along 
And I did spend a lot of time um, chatting and, and getting to know her sister, Mallory Millett. Kate's passed away. Um, Kate was hugely right. instrumental, certainly in um, the, you know, establishing the women's studies programs um, throughout our universities and whatnot. But she was very much more the intellectual. She's a Marxist. Um, she also had a huge amount of mental illness that she dealt with her whole life. Um, but she, she's the one that made it really clear that um, women, being a woman was actually the best thing that you could, you could be. Lesbian relationships were the height of the, the womanhood. Um, we didn't need men and that we had to have abortion in order for uh, you know, all these things to sort of come together, um, for women to have this, this freedom to be you know, the height of civilization, I guess, and then right. wisdom and whatnot. Um, so, and again, it's, it's really mimicking a lot of what, and I, I lay this out in the book too, a lot of what's happened in, in the Soviet Union, because they were just trying to get rid of women at home, um, trying to get, you know, abortion was just rampant. In fact, there were so many abortions, they actually had to like limit them because they were having population issues, sort of like what we're seeing in China now. Um, but the mm -hmm. idea was to make women just like men, kind of the um, cogs in a machine that they could all just sort of produce at the same amount and do the exact same thing. So the Soviets actually saw this as a negative thing. Like, what is this? This isn't who we are. But right. I think what happened with um, American women is that they took these ideas and they packaged them so beautifully. Um, they used television and, and the media just with savvy, savvy, savvy skills. Um, and, they, and they were able to bully um, people as well. You know, uh, Betty Friedan was a, um, very much a, a bully and it, you know, they've just found ways to get their message out, um, you know, someone like Gloria Steinem, who's very attractive and very articulate and very well put together and just lovely, people wanted to be like her. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is how they presented these ideas. Um, um, but it all really hinged on this idea of abortion. And you can see that, especially when you see, you know, what a difference there is between someone like Kate Millett or um, Helen Gurley Brown, who started uh, Cosmopolitan, because she was all about just following Playboy. She followed, all, you know, to the letter almost everything the Playboy was doing, but just did it for women. Um, and Kate Millett, you know, is on the other end of the spectrum, um, much more intellectual and and um, an ideologue. So you can see the two of them, you know, how how can these women actually come to agree on anything? And it was really abortion that was sort of the glue um, that that kept the way the movement together i think otherwise it probably would have fractioned off in all these different groupings and um we probably wouldn't have seen such a monolithic movement um but abortion was what really brought them together so they they just agreed to not you know disagree on that but they could disagree on everything else um keep that part quiet and then um and that's really what just kept them together and kept kept it focused and and you can see that again now even when there are women who are for the sacredness of marriage and for the sanctity of life, um, where are they? You know, they're not anywhere to be seen. And if they are seen, they get treated very, very poorly. You know, someone like um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, you know, Candace Owens is probably a great, great exception, and um, you know, is really a front runner on this. Um, we need, obviously need more women like her. Um, but yeah, it's it's they've done an amazing job of just silencing those that disagree with them. Yeah, almost impressively. I think, you yeah. know, in, in talking about the the break with tradition, I think is really interesting in how Protestantism really, uh, you know, reshaped, I think, so much of the world's perspective on like yeah. the value of tradition, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm always in, 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 
interested, intrigued, like flabbergasted, like mind blown at like how just far things have drifted from the original, you know, Protestant Reformation. And mm-hmm. you look at, I'm just always, you know, like when you, when you compare Lutheranism and Catholicism, how much closer they are than yeah. your Elevation Church or Joel Osteen or, you know, some right. of these mega churches now, yep. evangelicals compared to Catholicism, right? And just like how much more it drifted further and further away. I and I think, yeah. yeah, and I think it's so interesting, you know, to see these people who find themselves being more conservative and more traditional in those churches. Like mm-hmm. they, they have this just like wrestling within themselves of like, yeah. you know, yeah. they do, like this doesn't, challenge. yeah, it can't feel right. You know, like there's just something about it that just doesn't really add up, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think another big thing that I think you, you mentioned is, and then I was, that I really learned in reading the book was, the amount of uh, mental illness. Oh yeah, this was a huge piece that, um, there was a great, actually a book that came out right when I was uh, about done with my research by this woman named Phyllis Chesler, who was considered one of the, the godmothers of the feminist movement. And um, it was really just, you know, one of those Holy Spirit moments just dropped in my hands at the right moment. Um, because she, I can't even say the name, I don't remember it, but there are parts of it that are just not even appropriate for general audience in terms of the title of the book. Right. Um, so you can imagine the contents of the book. Um, there were plenty of things that I just couldn't put in the book because they were just so awful in, in her book. Um, but she's a psychiatrist. I think she's written a huge number of books, upwards of like 13, maybe even 27, or I can't remember the exact number, but more than 10. Um, and she's she wrote this book sort of as a tell-all and in it, she's listing all of these women who, you know, have these names that are have been very well revered. And she's talking about the end of their lives and how, you know, she's got mental illness and she's got mental illness and she hates her mom and she has it, hated her mom and her mom was mentally like, it's just incredible um, that, you know, these are the women that really are, are influencing us who are coming from this incredibly broken place. Um, and Chesler says, you know, we were these lost girls that, you know, prior to the feminist movement really didn't, didn't feel at home anywhere. And then all of a sudden we were sort of brought together um, and we weren't lost anymore. We were so, like, we had the, the eye of the camera with the whole country was watching us. You know, it was just, you can see getting right. caught up in the, the excitement of the moment and the movement and the um, this sort of sense of freedom. Um, and as I say, all of this, of course, you can see the exact same pattern with the LGTB community, exact yep. same, pattern. you know, all this brokenness that's then combined together and, and continues to keep breaking people. Um, so yeah. mental illness that, driven. What's you know, especially mental illness driven, especially now with like, yeah. you know, transgender, like gender dysphoria and things yep. like that, just normalized mental illness. And yep. like those people who are suffering and struggling with mental illness being the ones who are dictating the rules for society. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it all started with these women in the feminist movement. So that's really, I think, the saddest and scariest part, because we know, you know, broken people break other people. And so it just continues to, um, you know, the movement just continues to sort of batter and bruise those who who are involved with it um, because of the fact that it, it keeps pushing women out of this kind of natural um, sphere of, of where they're going to naturally be fulfilled, which is caring for, for others. Um, and that doesn't have to be in the home. Obviously, there are plenty of single women, even, you know, just look at women religious. Um, they carry others in their prayers and their hearts and, you know, other ways. And this is what women do so well and yet we don't really talk about this we don't in fact there's this big gap like if you try and figure out what's a woman today um and they're actually very funny videos i've linked to some in some of my articles i'd be happy to send you a link of you know women talking at the women's march like what is a woman um and the answers are just 
so sad, but you know, you want to laugh or cry. You're not sure which to do because (laughs) it's so so vapid. Um, You know, my favorite is anyone who thinks she's a woman is a woman. Um, So I I think that that's- um, Which means it's nothing essentially. Right. So that's the, the, the sad part is that there really is this great history about who women are, what it is that we do so well, where our real gifts are. Um, and so I, I, I've dug into the anti-Mary into some of this, you know, just even ancient mythology um, and, you know, the language, like um, anything feminine or things that are feminine are usually things that hold um, things. So like um, a ship is always named a she, um, you know, women have this capacity, both obviously biologically, which is, you know, we know our body points to things that are, are inherent about our souls as well. Um, so we have wombs and we have, you know, these arms that are made to cradle a baby that, um, you know, if you, if you as a man cradle a baby, you're going to get tendonitis because your elbows don't bend the way that ours do. Their, their ours are actually, you know, have a curve in them so we can create, cradle a baby. We hold, you know, people in our hearts and our minds and with compassion. Um, so it's this idea of holding things that I think has been completely lost. And so it's, it's been really fun to kind of dig into this and start, you know, rather than just saying, this is what women ought not to do instead saying, what is it that women really are meant to do? Where are our gifts that are really going to help our lives feel full and valuable instead of just this constant race to, to just be like men, um, which of course, you know, there's nothing at the end of the day, there can be nothing fulfilling about that. And that's, you know, again, I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of women who have lived this, feminine, um, feminist, um, narrative. And so many of them say, you know, I wish I'd had children. I wish I had a husband. I wish I'd had more, children." you know, even, um, yeah, it just comes up over and over again. Um, celebrities are talking about it constantly, um, saying they wish they had more children. So yeah, I think it's, um, it's a sad thing because it sort of leaves you trapped. And then of course, you know, how Satan works, he's going to come accuse them. Well, it's your fault. Um, so it's just this catch 22 that, you know, we all find ourselves in because of sin, but to have spent your whole life, you know, getting to this point where you think you're, you're, you've done your career and everything right. And then suddenly realize I don't really have anything. Um, I think that's just incredibly sad and, and tragic that this is what we've done to women in our culture right now. Right. And just seeing how backwards your priorities were. Things yeah. that you fought and sacrificed so many things for. So many yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. So many things. Exactly. It's really, it's tragic. I think, you know, and there was other, two other examples that I think I thought of, you know, modern day examples of, you know, talking about the lost women and kind of feeling like they had no place and no direction right. and no importance in society. It's like, you know, I, the, the first person that came to mind was Bernie Sanders when you said that. And I think just right. a lot of socialists, yeah. right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, Bernie yeah. Sanders or AOC, when you start taking these extreme mm-hmm. positions, like they can't even go back on that because their whole claim to fame is just like radical ideas, yeah. right? Radical socialism, communism. It's kind mm-hmm. of bringing that up. And when you look at Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, when you go back and like review their career, it's like everything you've done has been politics uh, has been politics, you know, like your only success in life, all of your money, everything that you've made has been because of politics. So it's like, that's where they found their importance. And so that's when you look, even, you know, looking at, uh, former president Obama, when you look at them and you say, okay, uh, you know, they, they flip flop. And I think it's so interesting how people are like mind blown that they change. Obama used to be against same sex marriage. And now he's Mm -hmm. this, you know, he's super LGBT and all this stuff. Right. Like I find it frustrating, but I'm not surprised by it. It's like, that's right. literally their whole claim to fame is it's all a matter of the polls. What are yeah. the polls? <laughs> they don't no. care. Yeah. They don't have any values or any belief in anything actual, you know, Just there's no principles. There. Yeah. 
no, it's, it's really, it's gotta be very tragic. And that's, you know, I, I love just thinking about the, uh, that asking people that question, you know, what do you want your life to look like when you're 70, 80, 90 years old? What do you want to look back? What do you want to see and, and have your life look like? And I think that so many people don't think that, think in those terms and just, uh, again, get kind of get washed up in this wave, caught up in this wave of what they're being told they should do without really critically thinking about, you know, how is this going to affect the rest of my life, especially when with women, where we've got this very narrow window of time for our fertility, and and most of us spend a very large chunk of it, you know, trying to finish degrees and get jobs and get you know promoted and and those kinds of things, versus thinking about like maybe you should just stop right here and have kids and just go with that. So that it's it's that's always like the secondary thing, like it, without without being the primary thing. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's incredibly sad what we, what we're doing to women and to families and, and to husbands too, I think. Um, and that was one of the things I've maybe noticed in the book. I was trying to be very gentle on men. Um, I think you've been blamed for everything for 50 years. So I thought, let's just have one book <laughs> that doesn't blame you. And, um, I actually had some pushback on that. On um, not blaming men? I didn't blame men enough, um, in the book. And I, really? you know, I explained to this woman, look, every other book has blamed men. So I think we can give them, you know, we can take a little bit of responsibility on ourselves at this point um, because we certainly, you know, own a lot of it. Yeah. It's, and so interesting to think in, in regards to the world today and like, even like the subtle comments and things, you know, when I started learning more about feminism and how to infiltrate the culture, like one of the silly examples I always look back to was like, everybody loves Raymond. I don't know if you've ever watched that show, we used I know to watch it yeah. with Seinfeld all the time, me and my yeah. family, <laughs> and loved the show growing up, but, like, it was, like, the classic sitcom where the dad was just an idiot, right, like, the dad husband, like, yeah. couldn't do anything right, and, like, that's, that's, like, so prevalent, so common in our culture amongst comedians, even, like, men, like, self-deprecating, right, like, have adopted every, this. Every commercial. Yeah. Uh, if you watch, especially daytime shows, every, if there's a man in it, he's an idiot, and the woman has to come rescue him from his stupid like he can't diaper a baby you know <laughs> exactly so it, like it's yeah. interesting thinking of how like prevalent that's gotten to then sit there and think like oh now let's blame men for right. things getting this bad now that's not me saying that like men didn't have any control or, or influence right. over it you know what right. I mean but how right. do you have both the men are idiots and helpless and then also be like let's blame them for the problem yeah exactly you know? you like, both ways right um, and that's the other thing that I'm finding a lot too, is just the amount of resentment that men have towards women. And so I think this book actually helps diffuse some of that because it, it shows, you know, so many of us, we just fell into this. We have, there was no, you know, off ramp to say, oh, there's a different way to think, you know, unless a woman has had like an amazing grandmother or um, just amazing other women in her life who could, could show her a different way there's, there's no way to get around it. It's just so prevalent and so common that, that it's just almost impossible, I think, for a woman to sort of reason herself out of what um, we're, we're shown as the way to go. Um, and I think that that helps men understand like, okay, this has been like, they've been brainwashed really. Um, and that right. I think elicits a certain kind of pity um, instead of just this constant <laughs> anger and resentment um, that I think so many men feel, feel rightfully um, towards women um, because of just the how you know, ten, how much tension there is between the sexes, because all of this has been turned up as high, you know, to the highest possible degree to create this division between us and then create more of a problem, having families and, and, you know, doing those basic things that have built civilization in the past. 
Right. Absolutely. So I guess going along with that, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you is like, what do you think men's role in helping to combat the anti-Mary spirit of our age? Where where do you kind of see the most effective ways for men to help? You know, I think that's a really great question. I mean, the first thing obviously is to read the book. Um, And that's been actually a really fun thing is I, I didn't, I didn't really think about men reading this book, but I've had so many people say, um, you know, my husband and I are reading it together or, you know, women say, I read so much of it to my husband, you know, at night that he finally just read it himself because he got tired of me reading him sections <laughs> of it. And, um, so that's I, really I think that's been just a great thing to sort of see that dynamic for a husband and wife to be able to talk about these things together. And, you know, maybe that's the place to start because it's very challenging if you're a man and you're reading this and your wife isn't reading it um, because you're going to see these things. Obviously, it's going to help you with compassion and whatnot. But if the two of you can come at it together, um, then it makes a, a big difference because then you have a you have talking points, you have a place to kind of contextualize things. Um, I actually had one man say to me, um, my wife will never read this book. She's a, a total liberal and she's just not gonna read this book. And I said, well, why don't you give it to her and just say, I, I read this book. I really want you to poke the holes in it, um, which, mm is a great way to both get her thinking, get, get her seeing a different perspective. And maybe she would poke holes in it all day long. Um, that's fine, but at least it's giving them a place to start as a, as a couple and have a context. And you know, if she dismisses it out of hand, he's done what he could, um, but he's gonna right. still obviously recognize it in her life. So, um, but that that's, you know, one of the things is that a lot of these things are just so indefensible. I've, I've recently had a conversation with somebody who was trying to tell me that it was just ridiculous that women are less happy now. And I was like, well, I would love for you to share me, with me some resources on you know, where this is coming from or what, why I'm wrong. And of course she didn't have any, so, but it's just the presumption is there. So um, I guess that's the other, the other thing that it does is just helps um, have a conversation with women that, that don't um, know where this is coming from. Even if you, you don't have to mention the name of the book, they can also just have a, a discussion about it and start. I, and that's one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm a philosopher, so I'm a big fan of asking questions to people because I think it draws things out of them that they don't realize are maybe a mistaken way of thinking. Um, you know, when you hear yourself say something, a lot of times you can you can notice the problems much more glaringly than if you just have these ideas sort of as you know the, the muzak in your life, that background noise in your brain. Um, so anyway, I would say that that's another um, incredible thing to do is to start asking questions to female friends about, you know, why do you do this? Not in an accusatory way or in a way that's um, even with any loaded answers that you're expecting, but just to sort of start drawing them out to, to start that conversation and get them thinking about the things that they hold as presuppositions that are mistaken. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that would, and it all has to be done within the context of a relationship, I think. Um, right. You know, we love people, we want the best for them. And that's obviously where people are going to trust you versus, you know, someone showing up and just getting angry with me because they don't know me. And it's easy for them to compare my book with toilet paper. You know, it's a lot different <laughs> if it's someone that you love and trust and, and, and know. So I think that that's another, you know, thing that men have is that relationship already um, to be able to start talking about these things without fear, because we know the, the statistics, you know, all, everything is kind of on our side. It's just a matter of helping women see that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, I think uh, I'd never really viewed it as like a, a men's or a woman's book. You know, mm-hmm. I never really thought right. about it that way. Um, but I, I think one of the things for me, cause I had learned and, and read a little bit about feminism and things like that before is I think we, 
in the church especially uh, have been influenced by the the compartmentalization that the world does of saying mm-hmm. you're a man you can't have a thought on abortion you're white you can't yeah. have a thought yeah. on you can't share an opinion on uh race right you, you know this, this goes into so many different things well you're not lgbt so you can't share a thought yeah. on yeah. transgender you never been transgender you don't same sex attraction which then you have all these people coming up with different genders. Right. We're the victims. We can talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else can. Now, me as a, as a veteran who's been to Afghanistan, I'm always, always intrigued by times like now where everybody has right. a foreign policy opinion, right? No matter right. whether they've been in the military or been deployed right. or not. Um, right. All the same people who say, you know, I can't speak about abortion will say that. Uh, yeah. yeah tell, tell us about how Afghanistan should have gone down. But so that's always interesting to me. But I do think that that is one of the challenges and issues is that men would look and be like, well, I don't need to learn about feminists. I don't need to learn about these things. But it's like, dude, if you're going to be a leader, which you naturally are as a father and a husband right. uh, in the workplace, in the world, if you're going to be a Catholic, right? If you're going to be a light in the world, then you need to know about these things, right? Like this is, this is, you know, if Carrie Gress is right, and this is literally the spirit that's going against Mary, the queen of heaven, the queen of the church, how can, like, how can you just disregard that? How can you not yeah. care about these things? Yeah. No, and I think that's one of the, the things that is really interesting is that there have been certain places that have dismissed it. Um, oh, it's just a woman's book or woman's issue. Well, sorry, if you want to get rid of abortion, the people that you have to meet are the women that are going into the abortion facilities. Like it's one thing to talk about this abstractly, but if you're not willing to actually address the very women who are vulnerable and are are, you know, are the ones that are aborting their children where do you think it's going to change? You know, I I don't know. Obviously we know prayer can do amazing things, but we have to change the lives of women. And if we're not even supplying in any way, you know, help to women for them to understand that this is important, that they're being affected by this, that this is, you know, then absolutely it's, it's absolutely a men's issue. And this is, you know, it's corrupting the family. It's corrupting our children. Um, it's corrupting marital relationships, all of these things. So to sort of try and extract it out as just a male or just a female issue, um, it's really laughable because it just shows that somebody right. doesn't understand the structure or the fabric of society um, at all. And really what's, what is driving abortion? It is absolutely these anti-Marian ideas um, that is, you know, shouting, shout your abortion and making it look glamorous or some sort of rite of passage um, to be a woman today. Um, so yeah, it's, it's absolutely an issue that I think, you know, everybody in the church needs to be aware of. For sure. And I think what you mentioned earlier too, about using that kind of Socratic method, the philosopher in you, you know, uh, encouraging people to get to the root of things, like asking those deep thought provoking questions. Cause I think that that's one of my favorite things when I get into any type of like Protestant versus Catholic debate, it's just like Mm -hmm. talking about the roots. And that's the beauty of our Catholic faith, right? Is that the roots of it are Jesus Christ. Like the founding is, is Jesus himself. And so when yeah. you can go back and you can look through the roots of things, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier with um, just looking at, you know, the, the Bidens and Bernie's and uh, feminists of the past uh, and, and even today who had nothing going on for them. And then they become famous and rich and, and wealthy and successful based on these ideas. It reminded me of one. It reminds me of BLM as well, because, you know, the stories recently of like BLM founders buying million dollar houses and things right, like that. Right. And right. it's just, I'm so interested by the fact that people don't ever ask those questions or start to wonder, you know, mm-hmm. this person who's pushing this agenda on me, pushing these ideas, and they seem to be working with all these other people who are getting like really rich off of this stuff. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? It's, it's right. really mind blowing to me. I was talking to my physical therapist yesterday and we were talking about these liberal cities and I don't know where she falls, definitely not conservative, but she kind of sounded like she was somewhere in the middle, but mm-hmm. a little bit more liberal leaning. And she was just telling me about like San Francisco 
And she's like, there's just this stark difference of like really, really wealthy people and really, really poor people. I'm like, and it's a super Democrat city. You know what I mean? I'm like, you don't ever like question to be like, wait, if these principles, these ideas work, why are the places? Yeah. Like, where's the proof of that? And I don't, I don't don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a a movie that came out on Amazon this year. I tore my Achilles. So I watched a lot of movies in the spring and me, my fiance and my mom watched it. I think it's called like uh, a Friday night in Miami or a night Miami or something like that. And it's like, um sam cook muhammad ali um malcolm x and uh jim brown the football player and it's like them like having a conversation in miami and one of the deepest parts is is uh malcolm x is comparing sam cook and saying he's like a sellout and all this stuff and sam Mm -hmm. cook is like i'm entrepreneurial i give black people jobs and opportunities and things like that he's like malcolm x he's like you just he's like you don't ever want the problems to be solved because you make your living off people being mad he's like if Yep. If this ever did go away, he's like, what would you do? Like, this is your whole thing, yeah. you know? And yep. it's interesting to see that today, like, like I pointed out earlier, of like the AOCs and the people of this world, like, how do you, how do people not question right. to see, you know, right. like people like Carrie Grass's books getting canceled, you know, and taken mm-hmm. down and banned. And these right. other people who are just, you know, freely going by and right. it, it just. Well, and that is one of the fascinating elements about it too, is just the fact that the, the amount of people that are making money off of women because they're broken because they're constantly broken the know, amount even, of men especially i think is interesting yeah without a doubt um you know a lot of bad men benefiting in in bad ways um but you also have you know even just the the um the oral contraceptive industry is you know it's just amazing yeah. to me how much money has been poured into magazines um, because of that, you know, I always joke, like, imagine if like an NFP group, you know, is supporting our work, um, you know, it'd be laughable. Like, okay, we had to sell a lot of like baby stickers, you know, whatever the, the chart stickers are like, the, right. there's no, there's those aren't the margins that you're going to make billions of dollars. Um, and yet that's what, you know, where they, they've got their audience. Um, it's also selling their product, but it breaks them and, and promotes, uh, you know, all this disruption in the family. And then it just keeps perpetuating itself. You know, it's all connected to abortion. And, and again, you can see this constant breaking of women because the benefits financially are just so significant, you know, across the board. Um, and, you, you know, it's even chronicled. I talk about it in my, in my book that, that, you know, there's these concerted efforts to make sure that we keep breaking women. They feel very discontent and malcontent, you know, the whole role of envy and jealousy, you know, all of those things are, are really at work. And, you know, not just accidental, but very, very intentionally put in these places to just exacerbate the worst aspects of womanhood and 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 break us at the heart of who we are. Um, you know, which is ultimately, you know, virgins and mothers. This is what God calls us to be. This is the natural way through which He makes us holy. But if you can destroy both of those, then what have you got? You know, completely decimated civilization. And so, and that's also where you see the difference, or I'm sorry, the similarities between BLM. I mean, that's one of their stated, they might've taken it down by now. I heard it was taken down, but one of their very stated principles was the destruction of the the nuclear family. Um, So it's all the exact same kind of, let's make a lot of money off of breaking people um, kind of tactics that for a long time. It's like the, these like sleazy salesmen, you know, it's like how I kind of think of politicians and some like big pharma and a lot of these people. And it's so, yeah, it's just so interesting going back to like the San Francisco example of the people who are like against the man, against all these things, Mm -hmm. you know, or the same people who were like so pro government lockdowns that ended up putting all this money back into the billionaires pockets and things like that, you know, and it's just, it's also backwards to think about, you know, how 
skeptical we get of like, you know, that person that's at the kiosk in the mall trying to sell you right. something that you know you don't right. need. But then right. if your doctor or the government tells you, you need to take birth control, you need to get an abortion, you need to take this vaccine, you need to do whatever. And there's yep. billions of dollars being profited right. off of you. Right. People are just like, okay. You know, just yeah. no, and I, you know, I think actually that's a really interesting point. This is one of the things that, you know, I really saw this gap um, of women's content for Catholics. And this is really where theology of home came from was this idea. Mm. Like we know that they use magazines to promote their ideas and spread their lies throughout the culture. What if we used that magazine style to sort of do the same thing with very attractive imagery, um, compelling women, you know, compelling kind of narratives going on in the book. Um, and it's been just a really fun project because I think women are, are really soaking it up. We love magazines, but it's just been great to, to put in it, you know, how do we put in the, in these books, you know, the, the forbidden pictures, you know, the very competent looking dad, you know, um, pregnant women, large right. family, um, you know, nobody looks like a doormat. <laughs> There's just, um, so it's been interesting to, to try and see like, why haven't we done that before? There's 35 million women, Catholic women in the United States. 35 million. That's almost the population of Canada. And um, we don't have one women's magazine that's all, like at the checkout stand, uh, you know, so the fact that we've left these huge holes where we, we don't offer women a way out of this, I think that, that that's kind of on us. You know, we need to start doing things that help women figure out how to get out of this. And so we've actually started a, um, a line of products that our lifestyle products that have been great. And I get a lot of pushback, like, oh, you're just making money off of the church. Like, okay, first of all, anybody that started a business knows that it takes a long time to actually make money. Second of all, this yeah. is a ministry and, you know, so much of it just goes right back into the, the company, either with its growth or, you know, paying for what, what the work that we're doing. Um, but even if, you know, you put all of that aside, the fact of the matter is, is that I am now presenting, pro, you know, we have, we have candles and, uh, you know, all kinds of charcuterie boards and hand towels and aprons and all kinds of things that I can give to women that they can give to their friends that are conveying the faith in a way that you're not going to do with just secular products um, that are, uh, but they're beautiful and compelling. And, uh, you know, I have great stories. One woman um, gave one of our candles, she had it blessed and then gave it to her really radically feminist sister-in-law. And the next time she went to the sister-in-law's home, there was the candle with an image of Our Lady behind it. And she, this, you know, this woman was blown away. Like, this is the most radically feminist woman you know, that I wow. know. And she, now she has a picture of Mary in her home. Um, so it's it's an important thing that, you know, the, the Europe got this, medieval Europe got this. This is why Europe is gorgeous. This is why everybody wants to go to Europe because it's stunning in architecture and art and all of these things. You know, so we have 2000 years of, of art and beauty in the church right, and then we right. don't have a single magazine or you know lifestyle brand so these are really the holes that that um my colleague noel Mary and i have been been you know striving to fill um there's no catholic joanna Gaines. um we have there's maybe two or three different catholic lifestyle blogs but they're not big enough to really have the kind of influence that um you know that you see secularly so and the secular crowd is actually um, so afraid of the LGTB movement too, that they won't put, you know, things that are Catholic on there very often on their, um, their own sites too. So it's this really odd dynamic where, you know, we just, I, I don't think we realize the power of merchandising and branding and all of that. And we're so busy, you know, sort of saying, oh, you're making money off of the church. Um, but ignoring these really huge blind spots and, and problematic areas in the rest of the culture and not seeing it as evangelical, um, effort in, in its entirety and entirety and how it can actually help women. So 
anyway, it's been a it's been a great learning experience to sort of see um, just a lot of these ossified ideas that we have, almost as like Protestants, where we think the body is bad, we think material is bad, um, and and kind of missing the boat altogether of what we could be doing to to share our faith with these you know beautiful things in our homes. Right. Absolutely. It's, 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 I think one of the most frustrating things in the church is as Orthodox Catholics and lovers of tradition, it's, it's so, it's so easy. And I think people so quickly go into this extreme, like, well, now, because we love those things of the past, we have to dig ourselves in and not move right. or change or adapt at all. You know, yeah. like the, right. the thing right. that over There's all that, these that years. Sort of pendulum swing. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's actually it's funny. I think it's, well, and I think we have, uh, you know, a lot of people have to sort of go through that phase of um, where you're, pur- you know, it's it's the pendulum swings so far that you have to sort of go through that f- phase where you're purging yourself of these things. And then you sort of come back to the middle, like, okay, how do I embrace these things in a healthy way? Um, and, it, but it, it takes a while. I mean, there's, it's certainly a sign, I think, of spiritual maturity when you can um, feel like you don't have to take that sort of Protestant route um, by thinking that the body is bad and things are bad. And, right. Um, to sort of see it in a balanced way, but also see just how the faith is shared and spread. It's, you know, the material is important. Think about a, a dinner, um, you know, breaking of bread, sharing of wine, uh, all of that facilitates conversation um, and joy and conviviality, you know, all those great things that happen with hospitality. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be some luxurious meal, but it, it sure helps when you have things that taste good and people are enjoying themselves. And, right you know, we work hard to do that. And so I think that there's, there's all these different ways that we can do that among our home, but also as you know, we're always giving gifts to people, um, being really thoughtful in, in the gifts that we can give instead of, you know, that plastic piece of Jesus junk that was made by slave labor in China, you know, they were <laughs> right. that. Um, exactly. so anyway, yeah, it's, there's, there's, I think a lot of widening a perspective that we have our work cut out to do in terms of just helping, um, women in their vocation as moms and as, as it, whether they're working at home or, or um, working outside the home um, or a single woman, like to help women sort of live that vocation as a woman. Um, I think that's a really important calling and something that's also been, been neglected. So yeah, we've got, got a lot of work ahead of ourselves. Yeah. And, and you know, we hear that, you know, working for Hallow now, um, mm-hmm. just hear similar things sometimes, especially as they were getting started. I think that those comments have really died off. Um, the question about like, you're, you're making people pay for prayer and all these different right, things. Right. right yeah. And I'm so interested, especially in the conservatives in those groups who say that, because it's like in, mm-hmm. in every other area and you're voting and all these other stances right. you have, you're like, so pro capitalism because you recognize the goodness that it creates, the high value that it creates, the, uh, the end products, right? Like why mm-hmm. America is a front runner in all these different industries because of our capitalistic society. Right. right. Um, because the, you know, innovation and things like that, that, that come out of that. But somehow in the church, no, let's just stay in the stone. Everything has to be free, right? Yeah, everything's free. So it can be the worst app in the world. And so it can be (laughs) low quality and nobody wants to use it except for the 60 year old women who are already going to pray. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. (laughs) So it reaches nobody. And it's like, I don't understand why people get so entrenched in that. It's like, you're so pro-capitalism. But then if somebody's trying to do something that's innovative, that's still orthodox and, you know, authentically Catholic, we have to tear them down. and, And I remember like in the, Catholic ministries that I've worked for, I remember Matthew Kelly specifically saying, he's like, all of our biggest um, enemies or critics or whatever you want to say are Catholics. Like yeah. it's always, yeah, it's, all, it's so true. often self-sabotage. Yeah, you know? so, total, total self-sabotage. Exactly. So 
um, yeah, the sense of, I don't get it. You know, I don't understand why we need Catholic products. Well, look at Europe, look at how it evangelizes, look at what beauty does. <laughs> these are, these are, I think, bigger questions that as utilitarian Americans, you know, it's just important to sort of widen that scope and say that cinder block church is just not, we can see the difference between a cinder block church and a gorgeous, you know, brick or, or marble or, you know, travertine, whatever, you know, there's so many, a church can speak to us in, in different ways based on the material and the craftsmanship and whatnot. And, and I think that those are important things that we have to keep drawing out that it's not, there's a big distinction between luxury and beauty. Um, luxury is self um, aggrandizing self, uh, you know, it's about turning things into the self or whether it's pleasure or pride. Um, beauty is something that draws us out of ourselves. And those are, those are the things that I think we need to help people see that distinction that this isn't, we're not all meant to be paupers. Um, and that there, there's something very important about putting beautiful things around us, whether it's our homes or gift giving, or um, certainly in our churches. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's very beautifully put. Thank you for sharing that. All right, my last question for you. I know we're getting over time here already, but um, is uh, you're a mother of five. Obviously, I don't know your breakdown of boy to girl, but I would guess in there there's a girl. Two girls, three boys. Yeah, two girls, three boys. So what is your advice? Like, what are you doing now as you're raising women in today's society? What's kind yeah. of your advice or perspective on that? You know, I mean, one of the things I didn't do it intentionally because um, I didn't really think about it, but my daughters know well the distinction between the anti Mary and the Mary the, and Our Lady. Um, that That's, I think, just something that's just part of being in our family um, because of the research that I do. And they, you know, they see my work, they see my TV shows and things like that. Um, but the big thing I think that really has, has been important is just um, our uh, family rosary, which I know sounds incredibly challenging to people. Um, we started doing this when my daughter was probably one and um, you know, she just would kind of play. And um, then eventually I think when she was about three, she started praying the rosary with us. And it's kind of been the same with, with all of our kids. It's, you know, now I have an 18 month old. Um, he walks in circles actually. <laughs> and his older brother walks behind him um, during the rosary now. And, um, but everybody, knows how to pray the rosary. They know at 830, that's when the rosary is. And I, I think that, that the real key is to not, don't waffle on that. Um, if, if kids know that there's an option and there's a way to get out of it and around it, you know, it's like anything, they're gonna complain and they're, they're not gonna wanna do it. But if as parents, you're like, this is just when our family prays the rosary, you know, it doesn't matter who's here, what's going on, um, yeah. we're gonna carve out time for it. And, you know, obviously there's those situations where sometimes we have to do it in the car, or, you know, other, other things come up. Um, but I, I'm just amazed to see the development of the spiritual life in my own children. Um, you know, my 12 year old, she's just on those, uh, you know, tween early teen years and yeah. I'm sure she will go through all of these different phases. But, um, you know, last week I, I, I dropped her off at our church. She'd asked, I had to go run an errand. She's like, can I just go to church for a while? And she went into adoration and to mass while I ran the other kids somewhere else. And anyway, it was just one of those things where I was like, I would never have done that at all. I really asked to go to church. Um, so anyway, I, I think that there are fruits of the rosary that are just, you know, it's just beyond reason in terms of what's happening in, in each soul um, through that. And that's just a, a basic thing that I think you can do. That's once you get in the habit of it, it's, it's really easy and it, affect, it affects everybody. The whole dynamic and fabric of the family is, is really strengthened by it. Um, 
the other thing, of course, you know, modesty is always an issue. And I think we really always frame it in terms of what we can't do. Um, I think we, um, you know, have, I received this great advice recently um, from a stylist who said, you know, why don't we point to the things that we get to do and what happens when you are a beautifully dressed woman, um, you know, Audrey Hepburn styling, <laughs> like everybody loves Audrey Hepburn. Everybody wants to be like Audrey Hepburn. She's just so timeless and, and so beautiful. Um, and yet modesty was obviously such a part of who she was. Um, mm -hmm. Why can we not start looking at it in terms of like, what happens when we don't objectify ourselves and what happens when we're not focusing on our bodies as, um, as overtly sexual or even just, um, you know, kind of mindlessly. Like, I think a lot of women um, don't really think about the effect that, that our comportment has upon men. And that's, I, you know, that's something we have to be mindful of. We can't just neglect men and say, well, it's your problem. You know, I mean, that's, that's, there's nothing Christian about that. Um, right. but there's, but what happens when we turn that on its head and say, if we're surrounded by all these virtuous, beautiful women, women, what's going to happen with the culture? And we know what will happen. I mean, Fulton Sheen has talked about this. He's got this great quote that I will butcher. Um, but his basic point is that, you know, the, the level of a society can be measured by the comportment and the, the character of the women of that culture, because men will try to reach up for that instead of groveling. Um, they they right. want that kind of stretch. Um, so anyway, I, I think that that's a, a, a really important piece that needs to be gifted to our daughters. And we have to understand it ourselves before we can even pass, pass that along. But um, certainly it's a hard it's a hard one to figure out. But again, that's really like you were saying with your own experience, that's where prayer and the Holy Spirit can can lead us in ways and kind of open up these new ways of thinking about these um, that are compelling and, and then we see the fruit of them. So yeah, those are my, the, th the three things that I'm really focused on in our family at this point. I love it. That's great. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. You know, you're doing some difficult work that not many people want to do, but it's super necessary. And I know that- Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> that's, that's right. Exactly. If not you, then who? And so uh, beautiful to, to get to talk with you today and just awesome to get to hear all the great things that you're doing. Um, super grateful for the book. Yeah, it's, been, it's meant a lot to us. Uh, and I know to so many people around the country and around the world. And so thank you for writing that. I hope you continue to write. I'm excited for your upcoming projects and everything that you've got going on. I think it's going to be a great blessing to the church and, and therefore the world. Well, thank you so much. Really a joy to join you today, Nathan. Absolutely. Yeah, know that we'll be praying for you and everything. And uh and uh, I hope everybody that's listening today will go and check it out. We will definitely link it in the show notes so you can go and click on that link to find the book on Amazon and definitely check it out, read it, check out Carrie's work. I will also link your Instagram handle and everything here in the show notes and uh, highly encourage everybody to just go check out this great work. It's one of my favorite books. I'm pretty sure everybody's listened to the podcast habitually has heard me talk about it no less than 12 times. So <laughs> you know that I think it's fire. So definitely go check it out. God bless.